Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, there are some that are scattered throughout the seats there in front of you. If you would um, take that, it's on page 845 this morning. Uh, John chapter 12, if you don't own your own Bible, you are welcome to take that Bible as a gift from us. We want you to have God's Word uh, available to you so that uh, you can read it. Um, So uh, please take that as a gift if you don't own your own Bible. John chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 19 this morning, cries of Hosanna and the shadow of death. We continue in our journey through the Gospel of John this morning, marching ever closer to the cross. And and, and understand, that's what the Gospel writers are doing. They are uh, putting us on a path toward the cross. John takes a bit of a unique path as compared to the other three authors, which we call the synoptics. Uh, but, uh, But that is where things are headed. So Jesus has just been with his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and um, they're celebrating Lazarus's resurrection. Jesus has raised him from the dead. And, and um, Jesus, in one sense, during this time of, of meal there uh, with them, expresses uh, that he is about to die, even as Mary has anointed him with expensive perfume and, and uh, worshipped him, really. It was the first move of Jesus back toward Uh, being exposed to the religious leaders again after hiding himself from them after his last encounter. Now he does so fully as he enters into Jerusalem in John chapter 12. If you're able to, would you please stand with with me this morning just one more time. John chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 12 through 19 as you follow along. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You may be seated. May the Lord bless the reading of his word in the Old and New Testament reading this morning. Would you join me in prayer once again? Lord, this morning, as we open your word, we pray that your spirit who indwells believers, who inspired these words in the original autographs, would now also illuminate our understanding. Lord, give us the sense of the text this morning by your Spirit and the application of it to our lives. And uh, Lord, for that, we will thank you because you are so good to give us your Spirit. And Lord, I pray for those who do not know you that your Spirit would convict them of sin and righteousness this morning from this text. And uh, that they would 
by your grace and mercy, be drawn uh, by the Spirit, regenerated by the Spirit, and given the gifts of faith and repentance so they might exercise those and be reconciled to you. Lord, I pray that we would rejoice indeed this morning at what we see here together. I pray that you would continue to humble me and, Lord, uh, give us only a view of Jesus this morning. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Last week, in uh, our time together in the Word, we spent some time talking about worship. If last week Mary's worship was through the anointing of Jesus' feet, and even by such she predicts his death, and Jesus makes this clear, then this week we see a more public demonstration of worship in those who lay down palm branches and proclaim Hosanna. But we're also reminded that Worship is not just a particular time of week where we gather, though that is at least worship, and we should be a part of our uh, it should be a part of our weekly schedule. We also know that our lives should be worshipful, as we even touched on last week and uh, brought to mind uh, Romans chapter twelve and uh, how Paul tells us that our lives are to be living sacrifices, and this is our spiritual act of worship. And if we focused a bit on that last week, this week the encouragement will be about looking upon the one whom we worship and why the object of our worship should be the sovereign triune God and why that is so crucial. So if we are last week sort of looking at the idea that worship is more than gathering, though it should at least be gathering, and that it should be something that we express with our life, uh, today we want to sort of take our focus of worship and say, uh, who are we worshiping? Who are we worshiping? What is the object of our worship? So here is the main idea this morning. You have this written for you on the back of your worship folder. Or if you're tuning in on the live stream, you should have received an email with these notes for you. The main idea is this. As many are continuing to believe in Jesus, even with some seemingly worshiping him, the Pharisees are even more driven to kill him. As many are continuing to believe in Jesus, even with some seemingly now worshiping him, the Pharisees, because of this, are even more driven to kill him. And I want us to see four scenes of what is classically called the triumphal entry. And the great uh, southern preacher S. Lewis Johnson says it's not really ultimately that triumphal because we know what it ends in is his death. But we understand why it has been called that. And we want to look at the four scenes here that John gives us um, in his gospel account of what is the triumphal entry. And one of my ushers to grab me a bottle of water, please. Number one is this. The crowd gathers and cries out. The first scene is the crowd is gathering and they're crying out. Look again at verses 12 and 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. In the context of John's writing, we recognize at this moment that Jesus has truly uh, sort of exposed his intent to make his way to the feast. There's no doubt, as uh, perhaps even we see indicated earlier, uh, the Religious leaders know for sure that he is going to show up to this feast. It's not a surprise to them or to anyone else as the perfect man and the perfect Jew, Jesus, would be there. 
Thank you, Brother Tim. That he would show up to Jerusalem. They're not surprised at all. And as the crowds hear of this, they make their way to find him and to greet him with this, uh, this fanfare, if you will. Now these, we have to remember, are not merely the people of Jerusalem, but Jewish people who have made their way to the city for this very feast, for the uh, Feast of the Tabernacles. So this crowd is likely made up of two sets of people, as D.A. Carson describes in his um, commentary. Those who have seen Jesus' miracles from the region of Galilee, and those who have more recently heard of Jesus resurrecting of Lazarus. It's clear that this uh, crowd is presenting something uh, unique about Jesus. And in some sense, they are creating a a buffer for Jesus from the religious leaders. So as they hear that he is uh, coming into Jerusalem, they gather around him, uh, not necessarily Jews from Jerusalem, though there may have been some mixed in, we would assume, but, but those who have witnessed in Galilee and those who have witnessed or heard of this resurrection of Lazarus, they're coming and they're coming in droves and they're um, beginning to, um, in a sense, worship him. And this creates a buffer uh, between Jesus and the religious uh, leaders. I think it's safe to assume that just as in the past the Pharisees are reluctant to seize him because of the crowds, the same can be said here. The way in which the crowds are creating this buffer is they are laying out palm branches and they are proclaiming Hosanna. Now, Hosanna uh, quite literally means give salvation uh, or salvation um, is here. Give salvation now. And also proclaiming, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now it's interesting to think about that word Hosanna, give salvation. Um, It it is probably a very well-known and and often spoken word in um, the the ancient Near East, in in, uh, Jerusalem. And and, uh, to to think about this almost like um, when we say the word amen, uh, it is a very common word. And so oftentimes when we say amen, we're not thinking in the back of our mind, so be it, right? I mean, it's, that's what that word means when we say amen. Did you know that? You're like, I don't even, I just say amen. I don't know what it means. No, it, it means so be it. But we're not often thinking that. It's just a word, a response. And in, in, in many ways, that is at least the way that many people in this day, in this region, would have used the word Hosanna. It would have been a very common terminology for them. And so it it is kind of um, interesting as we consider how uh, God in his sovereignty makes things uh, through the actions of men, through the what we call secondary causes in theology, match up to what is going on. It's, it's, you know, if they're just kind of using this word uh, sort of generically, do they not understand that this is the one who gives salvation? Of course, in their mind, and we're going to see this a little bit more even this morning, the idea of salvation for them is not a spiritual idea uh, as much as it is a, a physical idea. It is, in some senses, if we're going to talk about a king and a kingdom, it is a rescue from what they are currently experiencing. And that even is further expressed in this language of, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now once again, this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is a fairly common phrase and something that would have been uttered quite a lot in this 
temple feast uh, entrance into the city of Jerusalem. You have many people coming from many regions, and so they're being greeted by this phrase, blessed uh, are those who come in the name of the Lord. But we have this tag on here, don't we? Uh, This idea of even the king of Israel. So uh, just as we are welcoming people into the city, perhaps now we even know this is the king of Israel. Keep in mind all the things that John has expressed in his gospel. Keep in mind his purpose in pointing to the signs of Jesus so that they may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And so the wheels are turning here in the minds of the people. They know what he has done. They've, they've seen it. Some of them have witnessed it. So could this be the king of Israel? So the first part of this is kind of this normal greeting. But the latter part would have been the greeting for the one of the Davidic kingly line. Clearly, these who line the streets are putting down palm branches and signifying something very unique that they think about Jesus. Uh, palm branches uh, were a sign of, uh, of royalty. And, and, and it also draws our minds to, um, or at least it should, the book of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Even as these um, people who have journeyed here to Jerusalem are uh, now um, expressing these things about Jesus, there are echoes of the truthfulness of what Jesus has come to do and even what in the future we will understand as we hear these words ringing in our ears in the heavenlies. You see, in this moment there is an already not yet fulfillment though the crowd would not recognize this at this moment. They believed that Messiah would come and bring the kingdom with him immediately, not suffer and die in the place of the nation and to gather people from around the world into one, as Caiaphas had unwittingly prophesied in John chapter 11. They thought it it all should come at once. If if Messiah is coming, if this is truly the king, then this is our freedom. But they did not understand it in the sense of the spiritual freedom that would be received through the suffering servant. No, it's not that they shouldn't have known that. It was in the Old Testament, in their Bibles, that this would happen. They sort of chose to skip over that part about the suffering servant. In fact, it's really interesting... um, the, the, the research that's gone on in the Qumran community, uh, which was a, a sect, really, of people that, that lived quite um, away apart from any other uh, people, they, they thought there were going to be two messiahs. At least some of them did. They thought there was going to be a messiah who would come and suffer and one who would come and conquer and be king. They couldn't imagine that it would be the same one. And this is what is um, on the minds of the people here. It's not suffering. It's not 
salvation in the sense of spiritual salvation. It is a kingdom. But, but we have to have this already not yet perspective of the kingdom. The kingdom is, in a sense, spiritual for now. Jesus even says that when he stands before Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And yet we know that there is a physical kingdom coming as well. Here, as believers, we stand in amazement at God's sovereignty. Now, as people proclaim, essentially they believe Jesus is the Messiah, even as he himself has said to some and proclaimed himself to be sent from the Father. We rejoice in this truth and the reality of what follows in the death and resurrection of Christ. It it, it is so overwhelming, is it not, to think about the way that God's plan, as it were, is coming together in John chapter 12. As we have seen the way things have been woven together in this gospel and now are, are seeing these things come to reality, even as the people are proclaiming him as the king, and they don't quite understand how that is all going to work out. What they're thinking is not the way it's going to occur. God, in his sovereignty, is having them proclaim these things, and they are true. We rejoice in this truth. God's plan for the ages is unfolding before us in Scripture. Our shout of Hosanna is that he did indeed bring salvation, not as the Jews of his day desired per se, but delivery from sin and death. As we reflect upon what it means for Jesus to enter into Jerusalem in this um, triumphal entry and and the fact that days uh, after this he would be standing trial and that this road is a pathway to the cross and salvation. We rejoice and say, Hosanna, because salvation has come. It could be as well that you're here this morning and you are still in bondage to sin. You have not been set free from your exile in sin. This morning, my call to you is to see that salvation has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers this morning are rejoicing in this truth, are we not? As we reflect upon this, this is worship. It is to say, Jesus, you are worthy, for you have done the will of the Father. You have come and entered into humanity and died in our place. And, 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 and believers this morning are kind of, we're, we're kind of walking, we're trotting this path with Jesus, knowing where it leads, and we rejoice. For those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I am calling to you this morning to see that salvation has come. Secondly, the second scene is this. The Lord rides and fulfills. And some of my Harley brothers and sisters out there is the Lord rides. Yeah, great. Awesome. Well, it's a different kind of a animal. It's not a hog. It's a donkey. But he does ride. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. As we heard in the Old Testament scripture reading this morning, this is a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. Now we're aware, if, you're, if you study the Bible at all, study the other Gospels, that there's much more in the way of detail here. 
about how the Lord through his disciples attains this donkey and its foal, its, its, its colt. Uh, how he how he arranges for this to be there, and, and I love this. I, we often think of prophetic fulfillment as something that's sort of maybe mystical or out there. No, Jesus is like, we need a donkey and a colt because I'm going to ride into Jerusalem to show them that this is the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter nine. It's so cool. This arrangement is for the sake of Jesus to fulfill this as a, as a sign, as a signal to those who are looking. I mean, this, this would kind of maybe burst into their minds as they're thinking, is this the king? And if they know their Old Testament, which many of them did, it was their Bible, they would have said, yeah, he, Zechariah chapter 9 says that he rides in. And so this is the sign. This is, of course, why John even brings up Zechariah chapter 9 in these verses. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Fear not, Israel. Fear not, children of God. What did they have to fear? Well, in this moment, they continue to be under Roman oppression. That's true. They... They may not have seen themselves as that because they've been given a little bit more leeway than what is typical. But they are not the nation that God has called them to be. And so in one sense we get that. But, but let's not forget Israel has their own issues that are indicated by their current state. Think about the history of Israel in the Old Testament. They have never obeyed the Lord and continue to be um, in his ways, they, they actually become syncretistic almost around every turn. They uh, worship other gods, and uh, the Lord continually told them he would put them in exile if they did not worship him. So even as they are under Rome's control, they have been under Assyria and Babylon's control previous to that, and, and Egypt's control previous to that, and, and, and even as we read through the judges and, and the ways in which they worship false gods and, and let those um, <clears throat> other uh, religions put God on the back burner, if you will, for them. The syncretism. Well, we worship Yahweh, Yahweh but we also worship the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Uh, we have all these. No. They have failed miserably to obey the Lord. Miserably. What do they have to fear? They have, the, they have to fear the condemnation of the Lord, which is expressed in this moment by the fact that they are still not who God had called them to be. And additional to this, though they had some good kings, they also had many wicked kings, as Christosom says in his um, uh, uh, commentary on the Gospel of John. All their kings had, for the most part, been an unjust and covetous kind of men. And had given them over to their enemies and had perverted the people and made them subject to their foes, end quote. And at this point, they have no king. As far as they're concerned, the Davidic kingly line has been broken. And of course, all along, the idea was not that they needed a king because God was their king. They do not understand this idea of Messiah also being the eternal Son of God and yet also in His incarnation being the Son of David. Yet this is the union they need for true freedom from their sins. They've got a one-track mind on the kingdom, the earthly kingdom. 
They're not realizing that the one who is before them is not only Messiah, but also also the eternal Son of God. Yes, he is in the Davidic kingly line, but he must also be God in order to redeem them. Behold, your true king is coming. John is writing, driving to the point that this is a messianic fulfillment and this is part and parcel of what he means when he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He, he includes both of these things here and that by believing you may have life in his name. What is John doing in his gospel as he recalls these signs, as he recalls these fulfillments of prophecy? This is who this is, is what he's saying. Again, we as believers are struck with the precision of God's plan and his sovereignty in this situation. This leads me to ask myself, if I am trusting the Lord for the precision of his plan and saving sinners like me, what do I fear in the precision of his plan now in my life as a believer? In other words, if I have entrusted myself to him for my eternal reconciliation and salvation, why do I struggle today to entrust my life to him? Day by day, moment by moment. If the precision of his plan and sovereignty comes forth as it does here in John chapter 12, why not the precision of his plan in my life today? Am I trusting him? Am I entrusting myself, my wife, my children? For some of you, your, your grandchildren, your nieces and nephews. Are you entrusting your life, your career, your family, all that you're facing? Are you entrusting it to He who is faithful? Whose plan we see here precisely moving forward as the Old Testament said. For those not in Christ, my question is, do you really believe you're in control of your life? Do you really believe that you are the captain of your own destiny? I would hope that there have been enough things in your life that you would recognize that that is not the case. That the only thing that you can do is turn your life over to God through Christ Jesus. You, you know nothing as compared to the God of the universe. Turn to Him. Submit yourself to Him. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ alone. Well, as we see this unfolding before us, we notice that the disciples have something that they think of all of this. In our third scene, the disciples fail to understand, and yet people continue to bear witness the disciples fail to understand, and yet people continue to bear witness in verses 16 and 17. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. John drops a note here for us to see where the disciples are in their understanding and at this moment, they, they don't understand. But once Jesus ascends, they remember these things. However, there is an ongoing effort from those who 
saw him raise Lazarus from the dead to bear witness about him. And, and we kind of see this as sort of conflated here because the disciples had witnessed this as well. So, so on the one hand, they're sort of in their minds maybe questioning, what in the world is going on here? I don't really quite understand. On the, on the other side, they couldn't deny the miracles. They couldn't deny what had, they had seen, especially one who had been dead for four days being raised. So the disciples cannot grasp all of what is happening and certainly can continue to show that they have not grasped it all. But at the same time, it is possible for them to proclaim what they have seen. The truth that was undeniable, that even the religious leaders could not deny, was that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And in fact, Lazarus is walking around alive after being dead. So the disciples and those who are in the crowd can bear witness to this, while at the same time not fully understanding all of who Jesus is and what he has done. In fact, this is what has driven the people there to the edge of the road, and this is what drives the disciples to continue to follow him. Notice, just because they don't understand, they're not like, all right, Jesus, I'm out. I'm not going to follow you anymore. There is on, either, uh, on neither the part of the disciples nor the crowds an understanding of what exactly is about to come, but it is in accordance with God's plan. And, and Jesus knows what is about to come, and he shortly after this begins to communicate more clearly that he will die and that this is the will of the triune Godhead and why he is sent in the incarnation to do the will of the Father. I mean, th- this is the very cusp of that occurring here. The hope of our salvation is wrapped up in the intra-Trinitarian eternal plan. And yet in space and time, outworking of that plan, in the sending of the Son, the humility of the incarnation, the life of Jesus lived perfectly in our place, the death he dies that we deserve, and the resurrection that is coming. This is also something the disciples forgot, if you recall. I think sometimes we're a little too hard on them. We've been given the whole story. They're living it. But isn't it interesting that even though they don't grasp it all, they still bear witness to what he has done. We have the advantage of knowing the end of the story. By the way, do you know that God wins in the end? (laughs) We know the whole story. Are we bearing witness to him? Are we saying this is who I believe in. Brothers and sisters, may I encourage you and at the same time encourage myself, stand firm and be bold. Stand firm and be bold. Will you lose something for that? Absolutely. You will. I can't tell you what, but you will lose things for standing firm and being bold in the gospel. may lose friendships, may lose relationships with family, These men, when they did finally remember, as John says, they lost their lives for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of proclaiming the resurrection, people said, you're crazy. They continued to proclaim it anyway at the loss of life. Except for John, he was only boiled and oiled and exiled to an island. So I think I'd rather have death, quite frankly. 
In short, one thing we can learn here is that our salvation is not dependent on the depth of our knowledge or understanding, nor on the strength of our faith. We believe, but it is what God has done through Christ and by the Spirit that saves us. We may not understand all the ins and outs of that. Sometimes our faith is shaky, is it not? But that is not what saves us. It is God who saves us through Christ. Dear ones, can we please... I'm begging you, I'm saying this to myself, let us stand firm. Let us boldly proclaim the gospel. We have such a great cloud of witnesses who've gone before us, as the author of Hebrews says. Then he says, the ultimate one is Jesus who, for the joy that was set before him, went to the cross. And what does he tell us? Take up your cross and follow me. There's sacrifice in following Jesus. Even when we don't understand it all, we entrust ourselves to him. Well, after John gives us insight concerning the disciples in the crowd, he lastly here gives us what is going on with the Pharisees. So lastly here, the last scene, the Pharisees plot and predict. Again, you just got to love I mean, the irony of God's sovereignty in the midst of what those who are out to get Jesus say is so, I mean, really, it's, it's quite funny when you see this. Look at verses 18 and 19. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done the sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. this is the ongoing issue with the Jewish religious leaders. The fact that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead cannot be denied. And people are now calling Jesus the king of the Jews. And for the Pharisees, this is a problem, majorly. This is the ongoing problem since the declaration to kill Jesus in John 11, and now the call to kill Lazarus in John chapter 12. And even more so, they... Uh, up the ante once more because there are those who are calling Jesus the King of Israel. The impetus of this fanfare is the fact that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And once again, we see the Pharisees up their resolve. We cannot let this go on or people will continue to follow him, they said in John chapter 11. John chapter 12, they said, we got to kill Lazarus to get rid of the evidence that he actually did raise someone from the dead. We can't deny it. And now they say, do you guys see this? Now there are people coming from the outer regions to the road. And they're proclaiming him as king. We've got to do something about this. In the statement, there's not only the continued plot to kill Jesus in a sort of hyperbolic statement, of course, the whole world hasn't gone after him, but that's the way they see it. But, and here's... Here's the part that's so funny. Here's the part they don't understand that they're doing. There is a prediction of sorts here as well. In a similar way that Caiaphas unwittingly prophesies about the death of Jesus, these now also, in a sense, unintentionally prophesy about what happens next. Look at verses 20 and 21. So verse 19, they say, You see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Verse 20, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
truly in God's sovereignty at the moment they say with their hyperbolic statement, you see the whole world is coming after him. They are unaware that now there are Greeks, those who are not Jews, who are coming in and saying, we want to see Jesus. They cannot imagine the truth to what they've just said. Because there are non-Jews that are now coming and saying, we want to see Jesus. Now, of course, we're going to get to these verses next week. But notice that this is indeed now the world. There are not Jews who are coming to seek him. These are Gentiles. And why do they come? His fame is spreading. In fact, we know that he has actually gone to the outer edges of um, the land of Israel and interacted with Gentiles. Jesus understands this to be a signal concerning the hour of his death. Look at verse 23 again quickly. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now that there are Gentiles who have come and asked about me, this is the time. I want us to see, though, however, how this is all coming together in this moment as a means of God's sovereignty in our salvation. Believer, there is an opportunity for us to worship our God in this again this morning. Who is the mighty God of the universe who stoops to the earth to put on flesh and completely obey the law that Adam could not, that Israel could not? Who is it that suffers in our place for the sake of the forgiveness of our sins and yet conquers sin and death? Who is it that ascends on high and who we await for his descension from heaven? Is this not the eternal Son of God? Who is the second person in the Trinity? Who is God and who has eternally planned all this for his glory and for the good of those who are adopted in him? Sometimes the application of the sermon is simply this, worship. Worship. I think that that should be the application every time, but sometimes we just stand in awe of who God is and what He has done, and as we see these things coming together in this text, and and even His own followers are unaware of all of what it means, and, and and these Pharisees who are seeking to kill Him, even in the sense of them plotting to kill Him as a part of God's plan, and God uses their evil intentions to save sinners? Even as they're saying the whole world has gone after him. And they mean it hyperbolically of the Jews who have come. And now Greeks enter into the scene. Gentiles enter into the scene and say, we want to see Jesus. Do we not, dear believer, see our sovereign God in those things? And should we not worship him because of those things? Why? The culmination of it all is our salvation, firstly. And in that, we ought to rejoice. But as we zoom out from that purpose, which is huge, obviously, we see our sovereign God working all things together for His glory and for our good. Father, Son, and Spirit, 
one will, one essence, three persons, the outworking in space and time through the Son coming, putting on flesh, dying in the place of sinners, being raised again. And then the Father and the Son sending the Spirit into our lives, into our hearts, testifying with our spirit that we are indeed what? Children of God. And sometimes we just, we just stop and we just say, Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy. Worthy is he who was slain before the foundation of the world. What is echoing in the heavens right now? Time after time, day after day, hour after hour. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Through generations, those angelic beings have been flying around the throne room, repeating only that. Do we not from our hearts today, dear believer, rejoice that that is true? And then my call to those of you who have not trusted in Christ is to know that God is sovereign, that he is um, the one who will um, bring wrath on those who are his enemies, but at the same time is the one who, even while we were his enemies, died for us in our place. My call to you is to turn from Christ, or turn from your sin to Christ, so that you can be reconciled to God today. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, we are a blessed people if we are in you. You have adopted us into your family through Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection. And Lord, we stand amazed at your sovereign will, the plan that you forged in eternity past, which means it is an eternal decree. We can only think of it in concepts of time, but Lord, in space and time, you made it happen. And so we stand in awe. Lord, let us worship you for that. Let us thank you for that. Let us live lives of worship because of that. You are mighty. You are awesome. You are worthy of our praise. I pray for those who do not know you, Lord, that today would be the day that they would come to know you through repentance and faith. They would come and talk with Pastor Steve or one of the other brother pastors as well to understand what that means. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.